turn your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Nehemiah. I wish people would come to church that way, like running and giggling. That would be, that'd be nice. I don't think that's happening. Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning as we continue our journey through this book. Um, we come to this moment where Nehemiah is going to make this huge request to the king. Medo-Persian kings, like the Assyrian kings before them and the Babylonian kings before them, wielded unbelievable power, despotic level power, uh, where they could just immediately order someone's death. Um, and so there is some fear and trembling going on here. Uh, there's trepidation. There's a real question that Nehemiah would have had, is God really in this or not? In other words, does God want this for him in this moment? And so there's a complexity to uh, the, the question that occurs here in chapter 2, the, there's, where there's more than what's just on the surface. Now, uh, when I was a child, uh, growing up in church, and there's, there's lots of wonderful blessings to that, obviously, um, but one of the difficult things for me as a child was processing through how to think about Bible characters. And so I tended, uh, as a child, to think about Bible characters the same way I thought about like my favorite TV shows. So my absolute favorite TV show as a, as a kid was The Lone Ranger. Um, and, and then right behind that was Superman. And so I would often pretend to be either The Lone Ranger or Superman. Uh, and so in those kinds of shows, you have very clear good guys and very clear bad guys. And so that's why I tended to think about Bible characters. You know, so when we were kids, we'd play cops and robbers, good guys versus bad guys. And, and so I would think of somebody like an Abraham, and Abraham must be a good guy, right? Because God chooses him, and that's who he has the nation of Israel come through him. Gideon is a good guy because Gideon wins the war uh, against Israel's enemies. David clearly is a good guy uh, because he defeats Goliath in the valley. And yet, then there's other characters like Samson, who clearly must be a bad guy. Uh, while God uses him, he breaks every one of his three Nazarite vows. And essentially, at the, you could say he almost commits suicide at the end. So, so I had very clear good guy, bad guy mindset. And the problem then is, what do you do with Abraham when he's lying about who he's married to, exposing her to unbelievable risk and potential harm? Good guys don't do that. What do you do with David, who's a man after God's own heart, defeats Goliath, but quite frankly is a pretty bad father, um, commits adultery, and then orchestrates the murder of a guy. That, that's not what good guys do. Gideon is so terrified that God has to tell him multiple times what to do. And Gideon puts it under a fleece of trying to always find out what God wants him to do. When God is clearly saying, Gideon, do this. I'm not sure you want me to do that, God. Or Samson, is he really a bad guy when he actually shows up in Hebrews 11 as a marker of what genuine faith looks like? And so, as a child, I didn't have the capacity or the awareness to have a nuanced view of the messiness of people's lives, and didn't have the maturity to comprehend that God actually uses very broken people 
And that following after God and pursuing his glory uh, tends to be far messier than any of us ever realize. And so the truth is Abraham is both a liar and a follower of God. Gideon has amazing victory and was filled with more fear than faith most of the time. David was a man after God's own heart. And it's just as powerful in his defeat of Goliath as it is in his repentance in the Psalms of trusting God to forgive him. It's a lot closer to our lives than we care to admit. I think we have far more, we feel like we have far more in common with David confessing his sin in Psalm 51 than we do with him ever defeating Goliath in the valley. And the fact is Samson displays unbelievable faith when in his lowest possible point of brokenness, he believes that God will forgive him, and yet he can serve God. I I don't know about you, but I'm going to guess that at least some of you are like me, that in the lowest moments of my life and of sinfulness, I've been prone to believe that God could never use me or want me. And you realize it actually takes great faith to continue to believe that God actually really loves you, he will forgive you, and he can use you. And Samson had that. And so there's a nuance. There are complexities to following God in people's lives. In other words, following God is messy because people are messy. Like Abraham moving from Haran to Palestine, the Jews wandering through the wilderness, uh, the timing of the arrival of Jesus. Nehemiah is going to take us on a bit of a trip this morning. And it's a little bit of a messy journey to try to understand what's going on. It's like setting out on a long trip to see God's glory made plain. I don't know about your family road trips, but mine it rarely happened without something eventful. We used to joke for the longest time, we couldn't take a road trip without the car breaking down. Um, we couldn't get anywhere without a problem. Uh, I, I have three teenagers now, but we raised them from, from birth. And so uh, I'll never forget one trip. It was our longest family road trip. We were going down to Anna Maria Island on the Gulf Coast of of Florida, uh, we had not yet hit 95 from here, and my children were asking, are we there yet? I remember one trip with my parents, uh, Route 70, 70 that runs east-west, ended about a half mile from my house, so we got to get on 70 to get anywhere, and I remember we pulled out of our driveway um, in the Chevy Malibu, I think it was a 78 Chevy Malibu, uh, and we pulled onto the highway. So we'd gone about a half mile from our house. My dad had to pull over, go into the woods, and cut two switches. <laughs> he laid them on the back deck of the car uh, to, to, as a warning to my brother and I. During that same road trip is the one where my brother and I had our famous Skittles competition. You eat one, I eat one. You eat two, I eat two. You eat three, I eat three. We got through a whole family-sized bag of Skittles before I saw the Technicolor rainbow. The same trip, I kicked over a gallon of sweet tea in the back and was too scared to tell my dad, so it soaked into the carpet. Twelve hours later, by Michigan, it was ripe. (laughs) Family trips, family trips. Great memories now. At the time, I'm surprised my dad didn't have a heart attack, a stroke, something. The fact is this, the trip to put God's glory on display is rarely smooth or straight. Rarely. And as a child, I thought it must be, because I thought in very black and white, narrow terms, good guys, bad guys. And I lacked the the nuance of the maturity to understand the complexity of life. And, And I say that to you folks this morning, because my guess is that some of you are here and you are in a season or you've gone through seasons where you've thought something must be really, really wrong with you, because the path rarely seems smooth or straight. 
And the assumption that we can so easily fall into the ditch is that it must be so smooth and straight for them. And if it's smooth and straight for them and it's not smooth and straight for me, then what's the problem? Well, I'm the problem. And ultimately, at the end of the day, if I'm the problem, it feels a little bit like God's trying to use a screwdriver to do a hammer's job. And eventually, he'll just find a better tool than you or me, right? And so there's actually a lot going on here. But just to remind us, the trip to put God's glory in display, rarely smooth or straight. Nehemiah chapter 2, we can break it into two sections. Uh, First eight verses is Nehemiah making his request to the king, and that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. The rest of the chapter is when Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem and he introduces to he will introduce us to the conflict, to the antagonists of the story that will stay with us throughout the book. You would think that the main antagonist would be the king of the nation that has invaded and taken them, but no, it's not. Uh, because he will face far more opposition from people that are more like family than more than people that are traditional foes. And so Nehemiah chapter two, if you have your Bibles, please follow along with me as I read. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, Uh, How do we prepare for the trip? Well, we always pack the car. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, the trip always included some several key steps that we all knew about. Uh, We were going to pack the pop-up camper. uh, And so my mom had a whole list and she would send us with stuff out to the pop-up camper that we kept in our backyard. Uh, It always involved doing an oil change on the van. As a kid, that meant I was my dad's helper handing him tools. And when I got older, it was Steve go do an oil change on the van to prepare it for our trip. It didn't matter how far we were going. It didn't matter how many miles it had. If we were going on a trip, oil change was happening. Uh, This is what we're doing. Uh, We would go by the store and pick up some snacks that everybody liked, i.e. Skittles, which were never purchased again after that fateful Michigan trip, by the way. Um, uh, There would be a highlighting. I remember when we were kids, at one point we were taking a road trip all the way to Oklahoma City. And so um, for for you youngins, um, there's no GPS or anything. And so my dad joined AAA for that one trip because he he was cheap. And he said, I'm not paying for AAA all the time. And they would send you a booklet. I don't know if any of you had this. They send you a booklet with highlighted route, and you could highlight other stops. And, and so it was sit down, and uh, my dad would teach my brother and I. And so here, follow along on the trip so you know where we're going to go, highlight some stops. Uh, we'd always go the night before. The last thing my dad would do is gas up the van, 
before the trip, we would try to go to bed early and we would set our alarms so we could get up early. And so there's all this preparation that would take place before we ever got going on our trip. Nehemiah opens with a line in these verses that if you and I were Jews, we would get it immediately. But we're not. And so we do have to try to understand exactly what he's saying here. If you go back to verse 1, notice he says this, in the month of Nisan. Now, if you just keep your finger there and look at the start of the book in chapter 1, he says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev. Well, you and I commonly, uh, when we're reading something and we don't understand it, uh, when you're a child, you, you thought your parents were the walking Webster's, uh, what does that word mean? What does this word mean? We, we learn pretty early to use context clues. Uh, but as you become an adult, and there are certain things you realize that information isn't as important, you just keep moving. And it would be our tendency to read past those verses and say, I, clearly it was a different month, keep going. And miss something that would have jumped off the page to every Jewish reader. The fact of the matter is, if you, chapter 1, when it says it happened in the month of Chislev, that would have been roughly November, December. The Hebrew calendar is a little bit different, obviously, than our calendar, uh, not just in words, but in the actual dating. And so it, it, and it kind of fluctuates, moves a little bit. And so it would have been somewhere between mid to late November to early to mid-December. That's when Nehemiah found out. However, the month of Nisan is actually more March-April. And so mid-March, mid to late March to mid to early April. In other words, Nehemiah has been sitting on this information for four months. The cupbearer to the king was always with the king. He traveled with him. He stayed with him. He had a staff that he would have given oversight to, but, but just like medieval times, as you're aware with, with cupbearers, it was their job to taste and test everything that would go in the mouth of the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. That was his job. And if the king was poisoned, you killed the cupbearer. And so there's an immense amount of trust and loyalty in this relationship. And so Nehemiah, it's not like he heard the news, and this is the first time he's been around the king. He ended by telling us he was the cupbearer, and now he tells us it's four months later to tell us something very important. He has sat on this for four months. There's been a four-month delay in Nehemiah doing anything active based on the information that he has heard. If we think back to chapter 1 or, or look back, when he gets the information... Verse 4, what does it say he does? As soon as I heard the words, uh, the city is still broken down, gates are burned, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah has been crying and praying and going without food. That's what fasting is. Fasting is saying, I'm going to forgo my physical needs because my spiritual needs are so great. That's what right fasting is. It's not uh, intermittent fasting to lose weight. This is my heart is so torn. I'm, I can't eat lunch. I'm going to pray. I don't have appetite for dinner. I'm going to pray. I'm going to chase after God here. Um, this has been going on for four months. But the king is completely unaware of it. Nehemiah has not revealed any of this to the king. So I just want to pause a moment and tell us this. 
as you and I go through the journey of life and as we're trying to please God and obey God, serve God, follow God as Christians, we will run into moments that are filled with emotion. The presence of emotion is not an indication that that's the time to act. How you feel must not control what you do. And you actually, when you look in the Bible, you see lots of terrible things happen when we do. Um, Maybe the greatest example of that is Jacob and Esau. Esau comes in, he's been hunting. What does he say? I'm starving to death. If I don't eat, I'm going to die. Jacob's like, great, sell me your birthright and I'll give you a bowl of soup. Fine, take my birthright, give me the soup or I'm going to die. Look, people do starve to death, but people that are starving to death can't talk about it, don't complain about it, haven't been walking out of the wilderness, and don't have the presence of mind to make a trade. He was being ruled by the moment, by how he felt in the moment. You ever been ruled by the moment? You ever been controlled by your emotions? Nehemiah is demonstrating to us what we must come to in maturity as Christians, frankly as people, even that are lost, but primarily as believers, that my emotions are not going to control and dictate my decisions or my actions. It's like anger. Anger is not necessarily sinful. It's an indication that something needs to happen. Sadness and even feelings of guilt are the same way. They're indicators. Emotions should be thermometers, indicators of something, not thermostats that control our behavior. But then at the same time, confusingly, delay is not always righteous either. Gideon's delay is from being controlled by fear instead of faith. Peter's haste in his fear leads to him hacking off a guy's ear. And so how do we understand? There's a complexity to the journey of life that there's no way that I could distill it down. Like That would be like me saying, okay, we're going to pause our series of Nehemiah, and I'm going to do a three-week series on how to know God's will and when to act. We're not going to do that. But I also don't want to just skip by it blithely and not deal with it at all. So let me give you three truths that might be helpful to us. First of all, don't be ruled by emotions. Ephesians makes it very clear. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Be angry and don't sin. It should drive you. It it can indicate something's happening and, and drive you to a point of consideration, but do not be controlled by it. Haste is almost always unwise, almost always. I say almost always because Proverbs is is really clear that they are observable, wise principles of life. Typically, you follow the the guidelines of Proverbs, and as we study the wisdom literature, man, that was like a summer and a half ago, something like that, a year and a half ago in the summer. Um, The reality is it's observable wisdom. They're almost always true, but they're not 100% true all the time. They're not given to us as dictates that way. But haste is almost, almost always unwise. Almost always. And so there are are rare exceptions. But the first thing you want to say is almost never the right thing to say. (laughs) First thing you want to do is almost never the right thing to do. And so haste is almost always unwise. And then thirdly, be slow to speak. That's not a mistype. If you want to be hasty about anything, James tells us, be hasty about listening. Right? Be quick to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to wrath. Slow to anger. We packed the car. 
We, we changed the oil. We hitched up the, the pop-up, made sure the, the, the van was gassed up. We went to bed early so we'd get a good night's sleep, so we'd leave at a time to avoid the miserable traffic around Baltimore and D.C., so we'd make good time to get there. We delayed the start for the perfect time so we'd avoid traffic and get to the destination. The timing of the journey was as important as the trip itself. Make no mistake, Nehemiah's timing here has everything to do with the wisdom of how he's operating as much as the request that he makes. And so as we go through the journey, then how do we know or how can we see the right time? And there's several indicators here again in the text of Nehemiah specifically choosing this moment. He has already been sad four months ago. I mean, he would have been in the king's presence after he'd spent all night weeping, after he'd been fasting. The king is tuned in so much to Nehemiah's condition in chapter 2 that the king knows he's not physically ill and yet he looks sad. And so, yes, Nehemiah has been hiding how he has been feeling for four months because it wasn't the right time. So for him to do it now, there are some things that this was the moment. This was the right time for Nehemiah. He's personally serving the king. He's right in front of him. There's there's some things that we're not sure why. Uh, There's this parenthetical statement that the queen is present. There's all kinds of discussion about um, why that was. And, and so, so if you're ever reading a Bible commentary and you got like five commentaries and you got five different explanations, that's clue number one, nobody knows. So we don't know why. We, we really don't know why. We do know that the queen wasn't always present at these kinds of meetings. We do know that Nehemiah and his autobiography, because these are from his journals, um, that he's writing this, that he thought was important. So some have surmised because the queen uh, liked Nehemiah and was, was kind to him. And so Nehemiah thought she might um, help out. Some people think that the king would want to look good in front of the queen and look like he is merciful and kind to people. Um, we don't know, but, but he picked the moment when she's going to be there. There are, though, two strong indications of the way he functions that he thought that this would be a moment that the king would be most inclined to his request. First of all, it's the month that he chooses. And second of all, it's this obscure kind of strange phrase that he gives to the king. If you go down to verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Why, why does Nehemiah make this statement about his father's graves? I mean, did that really matter? I mean, if you go back to chapter 1, when the description is given, is it because his father's grave, the city of his father's graves is tramped? No. Now I, now, I think it mattered to Nehemiah that Jerusalem was destroyed. Do I think it mattered to, to Nehemiah because he couldn't put flowers on his father's graves? No, that's not what he's saying. He is trying to find a way, get this, to, it, to get the empathy of the king. So he's trying to communicate in a way that will make the king more prone to hear him. You ever done that with somebody? Sure you have. You, you, ever, you ever gotten in trouble with your spouse? Uh, you've done something you shouldn't do? Or maybe you need to have a hard conversation, need to make a request, and you knew having that conversation the moment they walked through the door after work was not the time. Having that conversation if they'd been up all night with the kids was not the moment. You just knew it. 
Um, you, you ever been a student in a classroom? You go and you need to ask your teacher something, and the teacher comes in that day, and, and uh, she just looks mad, right? I had this other teacher, Mr. Small, sixth grade. He hated car line duty, hated it with a passion. He told us about it all the time. He had car line duty. I remember it was like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, something like that. You knew you didn't ask Mr. Small for uh, an extension on your homework on Monday, Wednesday, Friday because he was Mr. Grumpy Face. So what is it here that Nehemiah is doing? Well, uh, maybe I could explain it this way. We all have, as a culture, ways that we deal with the dead. Um, Norse, they put them on a boat, set them on fire, send them out to sea. A uh, form of cremation that way. Um, you got Egyptians, they would mummify uh, bodies. I was looking through pictures at my grandmother's house when I was a child one time, and I saw all these photos of people having a picnic in a graveyard. I mean, there's these old black and white wrinkle foot, and I was like, what is going on here? And they explained to me that they used to go to graveyards certain times of the year, and yeah, have a family like reunion or picnic. And now, as a child, I thought that was like the craziest, weirdest thing I'd ever heard in my life. Like, that is creepy. And then they explained that like, so many people would die in, at, in an undue time. So many children would be lost in, in moms and childbirth. And it was a way of gathering and connection. If you actually go back to the late 1700s and into the eight, through the 1800s and into the 1900s, there was a mindset that, that how else do you gather? And there weren't public parks. And so graveyards were actually like green spaces to gather in as a way to honor the dead. They go around. We, we carry it forward to this day. And people put flags at graveyards. I've had Christians, you know, I've had Christians ask me in a semi-guilty way, uh, Steve, is it okay that I go and sit at the grave of my loved one? And I just sit there and, and, and they're always, they, you can tell they feel so bad. They're like, like, no, I know they're not there. I know they're not there. And I'm like, so what? Yes, it's fine. Yes. It's okay. Think Jesus doesn't understand grief. Look what happened with Lazarus. Think God doesn't understand sorrow. Should you care for the dead? Yes. What does Joseph say? Look, when I die, take my bones back. Like, it's okay. It's okay. And so we all have these. Well, interestingly enough, in Babylonian culture, they cared for the dead in a way that probably is offensive to you and I. They didn't believe in burial. They wouldn't do cremation. They definitely didn't do mummification. They would take the body out into the wilderness, and they would leave it to be eaten by predators, picked apart by wolves and vultures and bugs. And they didn't view that as bad, but you and I would, I mean, I can't imagine doing that with a loved one. I know that they're not there, but it's right to rightly care for the body that God has made. And I'm not condemning, but it just, it's like so countercultural to us. And so that's what the Babylonians would do, but the Medes and Persians didn't do that. The Medes and Persians were actually very similar to our culture. They would build a crypt of some kind or bury their dead, just the way you and I would, we would bury our dead typically. Um, and so the Persian kings who ruled in Babylon, because you remember what's happened is Medo-Persia has come in and conquered Babylon. And so Artaxerxes isn't Babylonian. He's a Medo-Persian king who's ruling in Babylon. Well, the Medo-Persian king said, you're not taking our bodies out to let the vultures pick us apart. No. So the Medo-Persian kings actually had a law in Babylon that everybody else could be eaten by the vultures, but not the kings. You bury us. 
And so what the Babylonians would do is every year they had a festival. And they would go and they would celebrate this festival. And it's called Nowruz. And it's still celebrated around the world by some groups. And Nowruz was a festival that in part would honor the dead. Because they didn't have graves to go to. But they still felt the sorrow and the loss. And so they're like, well, how do we honor our dead? So they'd light these candles and they would kind of honor the dead. And they, and they threw a big feast, a big party. Guess when that party happened? Late March, early April. And so you have this king sitting on the throne celebrating this festival of the dead that isn't the culture he grew up with and seems a little weird and different to him. And his mind would have been about honoring his own father, going to the grave, uh, putting some kind of offering and honoring. But he's surrounded by all these people that to him it just feels weird that they don't really actually care for their dead. And this is the moment when Nehemiah says, the city of my father's graves. And the heart, immediate, the heart of the king immediately goes, oh, I understand. There is a wisdom and an awareness in what Nehemiah is doing that he chooses just the right time. He has waited four months in part for this moment. His delay wasn't sinful, it was wisdom. And so once you're prepped though, the journey's out there, there's time to hit the road. Now, two things happen. First one is fear. If you look back down in your text, you can see what happens here. Verse 2, the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. <laughs> when Beth Ann was pregnant with our first, Ian, we went to these birthing classes. Now, we were praying for a smooth delivery, a good medical staff, and a healthy baby. But I wanted some birthing classes. I was terrified. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I wanted to know everything, blow by blow, what was, where was the doctor going to be, where was the nurse going to be, where was my wife going to be, what did I need to be doing. I wanted some information because that is a scary moment. I wanted to know everything that everybody needed to do. To, needed to do. I wanted to know exactly where everybody was going to be, and I wanted to know how we would know the baby would be okay. And frankly, frankly, I wanted to know what the plan was if things went bad. My youngest brother... His delivery went very bad, and he spent a long time in the NICU, and the doctors didn't think he was going to make it. So I carried a little bit of PTSD into the birth of each of my kids. And so I wanted to know. I was under zero pretenses that this would somehow kill my fear. Now, my friends laughed at me. They teased me a little bit um, where I was working at. They had been through the birthing classes. They knew the videos I was about to watch. They knew what I was going to, we were going to be doing, <laughs> all this breathing stuff, and they thought it was hilarious. I didn't care what they thought. I just wanted as much info as possible. And then the day came. We got there early. Um, she was going to be induced. What do you think happened with all that praying and planning? Before she was pregnant, we didn't know if she was going to be able to get pregnant. So we had been praying for Ian before he was ever even conceived. Let alone for the whole nine months. And then here we are. So I'd done all this praying. I'd gone through all the birthing classes. How do you think I felt that day? Terrified. And in walked this nurse who was like this no-nonsense. Um, she's probably in her, in her early 50s. Very young then. Um, and she looked at me and like, you know, like I look back now and I know she just read the scene, right? 
And she had, I don't know, attended hundreds of births, if not a thousand, who knows? And in her very no-nonsense, little bit of a upper peninsula Michigan Uper accent, she let me know that she had delivered hundreds of babies. She told me she knew exactly how scared I was. And she let me know, I will tell you exactly where to be and what to do. And by lunchtime, you're going to be holding a baby. And I was like, yes, ma'am. She told me she was going to be right there the whole time. I didn't have to figure it out. I could go on autopilot, and when she said, hold her hand, hold her hand. When she said, encourage her, you encourage her. When she said, cheer on, you cheer on. When she said she wants ice chips, give her some ice chips. Like, that's all you got to do. You just do and be where we need you to be, and it's going to be okay. And she said, I got you, Dad. I got you. Despite our experience in life, in high-stress moments, in out-of-the-norm moments for you and I, in moments that are even seem normal but are really hard, we get scared. Fear shows up. You know, we want to believe that with right planning and enough prayer, that somehow it'll make it emotionally easier for us. Because all too often we use emotions as a gauge of whether we are operating by faith or whether we've prepared enough. And I just want to tell you this morning that that's not true. Nehemiah has taken four months to pray and fast. Now, the sheer fact that Nehemiah is in the Bible, um, you kind of already know the spoiler alert. He gets to Jerusalem and they do a lot of work on the walls. We already know, I've read to you the eight verses, God was in it. But in this moment, all the praying, all the planning, all the preparing, not one part of it took away his fear. None of it. And if you operate in life thinking that on the journey for God's glory, that if you were just mature enough, if you just knew Jesus well enough, if you just prayed enough, if you just planned enough, then you wouldn't feel some way about it when it's a hard moment. I'm here to tell you this morning, you're wrong. It's terrifying to follow God when things are confusing and hard. You know, Daniel, Daniel was there during the captivity. I, want, I, I, don't, <clears throat> I wonder how Daniel would describe it, how he felt when he went to the king's servant and asked him, hey, um, we don't want to eat this meat that's offered to idols. Can we just eat the veggies? Look, he wasn't asking like you and I place an order at Outback. Uh, let me get my steak, uh, I'm going to get the Outback Special Medium, and um, why don't you bring me a blooming Onion, and can you switch out my, my baked potato with an extra salad? Like, that's not, this guy had made Daniel, get this now, this guy had made Daniel and his friends eunuchs. Oh, that's a guy that I'm very comfortable having conversations with. He had assaulted them, he controlled them, and he could kill them in a moment if he wanted to. You think Daniel's heart rate was at a steady 60? I don't believe that for a second. I mean, some of you may be like, oh, no, I, I bet he was. I bet he was. And you can't know that, Steve. That's your opinion. All right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody else bowing down on the plains of Dura. Once again, during the Babylonian captivity, everybody else bowing down. Here's these three dudes looking around. Nobody with us. 
They get marched up to a furnace that's been stoked seven times its normal heat range, and the guys who are throwing them in die from the heat. And their response to the king was this, look, we don't know what God's going to do, but we're not bowing down. They were under no pretense that they would live. They had no concept that they'd get thrown in the furnace and that they would not die, and they would actually spend time with the pre-incarnate Jesus. They didn't know. So either they were human and terrified, or, like you and I so often think, they were really good Christians that are better than us, and they weren't scared of anything. How about Esther? First sermon I ever preached that I actually had somebody really get mad at me. I'm like 20 years of age. I preach on the book of Esther. I had taken a Bible college class in Esther, spent all this time in Esther, and I started up my sermon, something along these lines, <laughs> young, immature. I still agree with it. Esther was far more of a coward than she ever was courageous. Man, this woman got so ticked at me. It was unbelievable. But do you know how scared she was? To go before the, she said, don't you understand? She tells her cousin slash uncle, don't you get it? He can kill me in a moment. He could kill me. And her cousin looks at her, Mordecai, and he goes, you know what? If you don't obey God, God will save the Jews, but you and your family are going to die. That's what drives her. She fasts, she prays, she gets everybody else to fast and pray with her, and she's still scared. You're like, well, you still don't know. <laughs> All right, let me give you one more then. Jesus, Jesus says, if it be your will, take this cup from me. And he says it while he is sweating drops of blood from praying. You ever seen somebody sweat drops of blood from praying? That's some intense agony, isn't it? And yet, what does Jesus say? Not my will but yours. And I think that too often you and I tend to believe that my emotions are a good gauge of whether or not I have faith and whether or not I've prepared enough. And I'm here to tell you this morning, they're not. And it's really dangerous to live life that way. And it will be really defeating to you spiritually. And so this actually tells me two things. First of all, don't use how you feel as the gauge of faith. Use actions of obedience. James says, you show me your faith, show me your works. In other words, show me, you tell me of your faith, show me works, show me your obedience. Abraham is justified by his obedience. Yes, by his faith, but by his obedience. Nowhere in there is their conversation. How did Abraham feel when he was about to kill Isaac? How did Abraham feel when God told him to move? The question is routinely in the Bible, what did you do? Use actions of obedience. Now, I've given you all these biblical examples. I'm just going to tell you personally, personally, this is a war. Because it will not be uncommon on the journey towards God's glory that you're going to have to do some things that feel horrible to do that feel rotten to do in lots of very little ways and in lots of very big ways. First time, I smacked one of my little kid's hands because he kept spitting his oatmeal on my face. And he was just old enough to start receiving some corrective discipline, rightly applied, non-abusive, filled with love, a, a warning, a, a sting in a moment to say this is not righteous behavior. 
And, and every time before that, I always held his little hands and prayed with him before breakfast. And I said, now, now let's pray. And he would not give me his hands because he was scared. How do you think I felt? Like the world's worst dad. But either I'm going to obey or I'm not. First time I gave a Bible lesson at a closing Awana. And I had a handout. It's like a 15-minute devotional. I spent hours prepping this thing. Hours upon hours. First conversation I had, the lady's name was Arlene. First, very, very first thing, very first thing she tells me. I misspelled judgment on the handout. How do you think I felt? I don't ever want to do that again. Felt horrible. The whole time, 15 minutes, all she had been consumed by was how I had misspelled judgment. Friends, we cannot use our feelings as gauge whether or not we have enough faith. Use acts of obedience. Secondarily, there is a crowd in heaven that cheers you on, especially Jesus. Hebrews 11 tells us we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Therefore, don't give up running the race of faith, Hebrews chapter 12. They are cheering you on. Listen, listen, Abraham, who, yes, was going to sacrifice his son but also lied about his wife, is in heaven cheering you on. Samson, who violated every Nazarite vow, and then dies saying, God, just give me the strength one last time to fulfill what you've called me to do. And he kills more Philistines on the day, that day, than he had his whole life combined up until that moment. He's cheering you on. David, who's a man after God's own heart, who kills Goliath in the valley, but then he goes and he commits adultery and murders her husband, doesn't deal with his son who rapes his daughter, has his kingdom stolen from him by his another son, has that son killed, is cheering you on. But most importantly, Jesus, who sweat great drops of blood, knows it's not your feelings. He's cheering you on. We look at life and we think the journey's supposed to be smooth and easy to walk by faith. It's not, my friends. But if you are obeying by faith, you need to know that's glorifying God. And he is cheering you on. Nehemiah is terrified. And yet, what does he do? I'm going to obey. I'm going to do the next right thing. The next thing he does, it's not just fear. He has a flare prayer. That's what I call it. I don't know what else to call it. It's this really quick prayer moment. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, verse 3, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, I call this a flare prayer because we actually know he's been praying for four months. But in this moment, he throws up another prayer. If soldiers need to mark their position, uh, artillery strike, they got to mark something else, they got to mark their position, here's where I'm at so you don't hit me. Here's where I'm, I, I'm at so you come get me. If you're out in the sea, if you're lost in the ocean, you shoot up a flare. And this is what flares do. Flares mark your location. They fix your position for everyone else. Nehemiah sends up a flare prayer. It's, it's a very much, this is the moment, God. Here we go. <laughs> you ever been there? You ever been in that moment where you've been praying about it, you've done all the planning you got, you, you could do, and then all of a sudden it happens right here. And, and as Mike Tyson used to say, <laughs> often you think you're going to hear that quote in a sermon, <clears throat> everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the nose. 
You got all the planning, you got all the praying, and then you get in that moment, and you're like, all right, Jesus, here we go. This is it. It's walking into a hard conversation, a job interview, asking for a raise, having to make a tough announcement, giving somebody bad news, signing legal papers in the delivery room during pre-op. It's these kinds of moments. It's walking in to do the SAT or ACT or ask a teacher for an extension or for help. It's like the guy who was going in for a difficult surgery. He gets wheeled into the operating room. <coughs> Anesthesia is starting to kick in. Just as it's starting to kick in, the surgeon comes and stands over him. He's looking down at him. And he goes, okay, Michael, you know what? I know this is scary. I know it's hard, uh, but it has to happen. You've been walked through how this is going to go. And you're going to get through this. Now, the patient looks up at the doctor. He's terrified because he thinks they might have the wrong guy. He says, my name isn't Michael. It's Bob. And the doctor looks at him and goes, no, my name's Michael. <laughs> so what's Bob do? Flare prayer, I guarantee you. <laughs> Flare prayer. Here we go, Jesus. A flare prayer, it's the honest cry of a heart that recognizes that unless God builds the house, the laborers labors in vain. It's a reminder in that moment we are not alone. It's a reminder that his glory is what matters. It's a heart-settling, mind-affirming, soul-preserving cry to the one who has all the power to use us for his glory and our good. It's an admission in that moment that all the planning means nothing unless the ultimate planner is in this. And so we hit the road, but how do we understand this journey, really? What did Nehemiah do for four months? Well, verses 6 through 8 actually make it really clear, in part, that he was planning. Nehemiah has some well-rehearsed answers. Nehemiah has thoughtfully and prayerfully considered all that he could, and he's only now brought this to the attention of the king when he thinks he has settled every answer that could be to every question that could be asked of him. Now, this is another one of those moments that the fact that the book is autobiographical is important for us. It's critical because Nehemiah can own his own fear for us in verse 2. But he can also use a phrase at the end of verse 8. And so if you go all the way down to verse 8, um, he talks about this letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, Timber for the beams, the walls, the gates. But all the way at the end, he says this. The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, that is actually an unusual phrase in the Bible. Ezra, Ezra uses it six times. In the book of Ezra, six times that same phrase is used. It's used to talk about Ezra's journey back, the fact that they were allowed to leave, God's good hand was upon them. Uh, the fact that there would be safety. Uh, the, the king asked him if he wanted a guard to go with him. Ezra says no, because I believe the good hand of God will be upon us. And then after he arrives safely, Ezra goes, whew, we got there safely because the good hand of God was upon us. They want to reinstitute worship in the temple, but they don't have any Levites. They don't have any priests. And so Nehemiah, Ezra starts praying and asking God, and God provides priests and temple servants. And Ezra says, the good hand of God was upon us. And so it's constantly in this journey. This, is, this verse and verse 18 later in chapter 2 are the only times it shows up in Nehemiah. 
It's a way of saying God was in this. Now, I just want to point out to you, Nehemiah had no way of knowing whether or not God was in this moment or not until right then. Nehemiah had no promise of God. Nehemiah, you're the one who's going to do the building. Now, Nehemiah was convinced God would fulfill his covenant promises. Nehemiah was convinced the city would be rebuilt, worship would be restored, because God had promised all those things. Nehemiah had no clue, no clue whatsoever, if this would be the moment and if Nehemiah would be the guy. He didn't know. There was no way for him to know. He is walking by faith, not sight. There was no possible way, hear this now, for Nehemiah to know and experience the good hand of God until after he said yes and started stepping forward. And do you know how you and I live? Most of the time, we want to know his hand is in it before we take that step. What you do have is what Nehemiah had. And that should drive us to act. And what it is is a destination in mind. And the destination in Nehemiah's mind is God's glory. His planning and his prayer, they reveal that Nehemiah had a sense of inadequacy about him. He understood that he couldn't do this and he needed God in it. He realized that the job is bigger than him. He realized that his passion to see it done is not enough. The only way that you get to this moment like Nehemiah, the only way you and I will ever push past our feelings of fear and inadequacies is when our focus is only on the destination, the glory of God. God's glory, God's glory, God's glory. And I'm going to take that next step that he's calling me to. All I can do is obey today. Jesus even makes that clear for us when he tells us sufficient for the day are the evils thereof. You're not doing yourself any good to spend all your time worrying about this stuff. In the future, you cannot control, you cannot change, you cannot alter. What has God called you to do today on this journey? It's important for us to understand from Nehemiah right here at the beginning that your journey, just like Nehemiah's, my journey, just like your journey, will have lots of stops, turns, twists, unexpected delays, and many, many points of trust. Nehemiah is a type of Christ. He's on mission to rebuild God's people, just like Jesus ultimately will be. Nehemiah is on mission to have a safe place for God's people, just like Jesus ultimately will be. Nehemiah will face opposition from within and without, just like Jesus, whose fiercest betrayal came from one of the closest friends. He will stand apart from his family, Nehemiah, his brother, comes back with a report, but he's not driven to actually do the work. He works with Nehemiah, but it's up to Nehemiah. Just like Jesus' own family will stand away from him, and it's not until after his death that his family actually become believers. He's unrelenting in his pursuit of God's glory. He will face so much opposition, you will see Nehemiah just keep tracking, just keep tracking, just keep tracking, just like Jesus just keeps tracking, keeps tracking, only on mission for God. And so he's, when he says, take this, if you be your will, take this cup, yet not my will, but your will be done. Nehemiah is a type of Christ. He's pointing to the greater Messiah who constantly came to rescue God's people, provide a place for God's people, face opposition, push through opposition, all for the glory of the Father. There comes this verse in Galatians where it says, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. 
There was a right time. Abraham got stuck on his journey and had to be moved again. I don't know if you remember that as part of the story. When he leaves his homeland, he's traveling to Palestine. He stops about halfway and gets stuck there for a while. And God has to get him moving again. The Jews spend years and years, 400 years in slavery. Then they get out in the wilderness and they get stuck again for 40 years as a result of their own disobedience. And God has to get him moving again. The Jews had spent 70 years in captivity before Zerubbabel, who goes to rebuild the temple, another 80 years before Ezra goes back, and another 13 years before Nehemiah happens. The world struggled in sin for thousands and thousands of years without a Savior until Jesus arrived. And now we've been 2,000 years waiting for him to come back. The trip to put God's glory on display is rarely smooth or straight, but the journey is part of the display of his glory also. Because without the twists and the turns, without the stops and the starts, you actually don't get stories like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Esther, all part of the captivity, or Nehemiah, a cupbearer, not a pastor, not a preacher, not a priest, not a king, a cupbearer. More of a middle management kind of guy. Just trying to be on mission for God's glory. And then seeing God move in the heart of the most powerful man on the planet at that time. And say, yeah, have all the timber you need. And here's the letters. Go rebuild God's city. You see, without the twists and the turns of your journey and my journey, we would miss out on so many signs of God's glory. Can I just call us to a journey that is on mission for his glory? And may you and I have moments, unbelievable faith-building moments, like a Persian king sitting at a festival drinking a glass of wine that celebrates the dead, suddenly having his eyes and his heart turned to rebuild the city of the one true God. And then may we glorify God for the great things that he does and he has done 